Welcome to the next episode of American Filmmaker. On this episode, we're going to talk to Chris Hunt. Chris Hunt is a comic book artist, a lover of nature, a earthling, and most importantly, he's a talented storyteller, bringing stories through images that he creates through his hand and his mind. Welcome, Chris Hunt. Thanks, man. How you doing? Pretty good, pretty good. Chris and I met at a film festival when we were screening My Friend's Rubber Ducky, which is a spiritual stoner comedy. It's available everywhere, streaming, iTunes, YouTube, all the good places. And we just started hanging out. As the life of a filmmaker and a creative go, you you meet a lot of people on the journey, and then you always stay in contact. And it just happens that now Chris and I are going to work on a project together. I'm publishing another screenplay, and Chris is going to do the cover art for the book. So I just want to say thanks, Chris. I appreciate it. I know you're busy working on a lot of other stuff that's probably making you a lot more money, so I really, really appreciate it. <laughs> no. No, it's, I mean, I, I, I love, like you are saying, like the, the sort of randomness of when you're creative and you're moving around or just visiting other places a lot and what that leads to. I mean, specifically, I just love the fact that, you know, I was basically, like, gotten off a plane from New York the day before, showed up in Sun Valley with a bunch of my friends who were, like, showing films and projects there, and then I just I was like, I'm going to go to the casino bar by myself, and then I just ran into you in the middle of an empty street, basically asking for directions, and I'm like, I don't, I don't know, but I think maybe it's that way, and completely wrong, but that was, and then we just kept running into each other at the, at the festival after that. I thought that was awesome. Yeah, yeah, that was a good time. You know, I wanted to bring you on the show just to talk about storytelling from uh, your point of view. I guess the first question that I ask is normally, tell me a little bit about growing up and when you realized that you might be creative and have some storytelling in you. When I was born, I was born in Ohio, where I'm at now. I'm only I'm about five minutes away from the hospital where I was born at. And I was sick a lot. Uh, my parents ended up splitting up when I was about five. But before that, even my dad wasn't very wasn't very much in the picture. He's a truck driver. The only time I would spend time with him was when I was on the road with him, which was rather extensive in the summers from about the age four to uh, seven. So I hit every every continental state I'd been through by the time I was seven. So I haven't hit Alaska or Hawaii. I, I ended up having to entertain myself a lot as a kid, which is something I, I sort of think a lot of us have in common with each other. It's that we kind of like had to sort of, you know, be either poor, you know, and had brothers and sisters, or it's like, you're, you know, like in my case, I was the only child, but I was around adults all the time who were kind of doing their own thing. So, you know, they tried the coloring book thing with me really early, and I just, I wasn't having it. I, I don't remember a lot, obviously, because I was pretty young, but I just remember being frustrated by the, uh, my inability to color within the lines. I just, I mean, I didn't have the mus- muscle memory or the motor skills to even do it, and it just, just, but can I cuss? I'm sorry, I should ask that question. Do I not cuss? Oh, yeah, you can cuss. It's super so, chill on American Filmmaker, the podcast. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> you know, I lacked the motor skills to actually color within the lines, and it frustrated the shit out of me. I remember that part. I would throw the crayons against the wall, you know, and that was, I mean, that's at the time, I think that was like at 34, I'm on the fence of like, you know, what life is before technology. And so I have a lot of things in common with people who are older than me where it's like, I feel like my iPad when I was three was a coloring book. That's what you just handed a kid, like, oh, don't bother me, go do some shit. So it pissed me off. And so somebody, I don't know who, I think it was my Aunt Karen possibly, just had the bright idea of just handing me blank paper. If, you know, if the issue, she was, somebody was able to figure out the issue I was having with it was not being able to be perfect, essentially, not being able to stay within the, the boundaries of those lines. And so 
it sounds more dramatic than, than it needs to be, but, you know, but someone essentially just sort of said, like, hey, here's your blank paper. Just there's nothing incorrect here. You know, if you're just trying to draw then But then that became the obsession of like trying to see something in my head and then get it out. And so I think that like I, I inadvertently became creative just becoming obsessive about drawing. And it was a way of entertaining myself or keeping myself occupied. And I just I just never stopped having that obsession. I, I don't think I'm, I'm I, to be honest with you, I, I wasn't really born with any kind of talent at all. People assume that a lot of times, which is sort of funny to me. I just uh, I think my inclination was to just drop. That was some people love football, but that that was my thing. That was the thing that kind of scratched an itch for me. So I've just progressed from there. And and someone showed me a comic that was Karen showed me a comic book when I was nine. And it was this guy named Paul Pope, who was like a guy they knew that lived in Columbus. Now he's like a big thing, works for DC and a bunch of other stuff. And he's a good friend and my mentor, but at the time it was just some dude. And I didn't understand it. And I hear people talk about this with Jack Kirby a lot, who was kind of the guy that sort of wrote the rule book on American comics. That You look at his stuff and it's weird and it's not accurate. You know, it's like it's not like accurate anatomy. It's not 100% what someone would say is a realistic figure. But it doesn't need to be that that way. I just remember looking at it and being fascinated with it and not understanding how to read a comic. And then I was just like, this is it. I just, I just, for me, it seems amazing the idea that like somebody sat down and constructed a world solely out of their own imagination and then manifested it in some way. So what led you to your mentor? It's funny. So I toiled away for years and through, you know, school, junior high, high school. I was going to go to art school, and but I, I would carry around Paul's comics with me. This particular series he had called THB. I'd carry these four issues around. I still have them. They're beat shit. I would. I was in a lot of art classes and video classes. Those were the two things I was obsessed with. By the time I was in junior senior year, I was just mired in just you know story construction constantly. And the friends I had, they're everybody's a professional now in their in their chosen field. We all behaved, we had fun, we had a lot of fun, but we all behaved like it was business. You know, like the video projects we had, I mean, we shot a car chase at two BMW M3s when we were like 15 and 16, going like 120 miles an hour. We had like a jib at the side of a, of a minivan. We had like people like blocking cars and with radios and shit. So, I mean, we were like very, you know, we, we could figure it out. We planned everything out. And so I was very logical. And the reason I'm saying this is that like when I realized going to art school, was just going to be me getting a degree in graphic design with like a hundred thousand dollars in debt. Cause I was accepted at the school of the art Institute of Chicago and then a school called CCAD, which is here in Columbus. And I even had scholarships to some of them and it's, but it wasn't full rides. I'm like, this is insane. I'm not going to be able to draw comics. And actually the Chicago woman who was interviewing me told me I wouldn't. She's like, Oh no, no, you don't know what you want to do. I'm like, well, well actually motherfucker I do. So I decided not to go to art school and decided it ended up just enrolling at Boise state to, get a business degree so I'm like fuck it I'll just run a business and then I'll learn how to do comics on the side if I want to but I kind of I felt it, it would be my dream for so long that I was a little bit shunted by it I think and so I didn't look at comics for a couple of years actually till about I was 19 and Paul had a book called Batman Year 100 come out and won the Eisner and did very well and at that time I had also gotten onto Yahoo's photo sharing website Flickr which back in the day was like a great community if you were just trying to like get to know people and get better and have people sort of criti- be cr- have with a critical eye. So I was on there and I was starting to draw a little bit again. And I found Paul kind of sort of a secret Flickr profile. And 
so I was following him, and I was like, you know, I got bit by the bug. You know, your 100 was amazing. Again, it was like a crayon thing. I was, I was like, I know he uses brushes. He uses semi ink and some kind of paper. And so I'd go and grab things at random at the art supply store and just not, and I, I mean, I didn't know anything. I didn't know, like, you had to scan shit, bump the levels up in Photoshop. That's how you got, like, the, that pristine black and white. I just did not know what I didn't know. And so finally I was just like, fuck it. You know what? I'm going to just go on a limb. I'd always wanted to write him a letter anyways. And so I was like, I'm going to write, I'm going to write this dude a note on Yahoo, Flickr. And I did. It was not really super open-ended at first because I just wanted to see if he just would like respond at all or not be an asshole. So it was just sort of like, Hey, thank you. You inspired me. Yada, yada, yada. But then as I was like trying to like make everything sort of sort it, sort out the tools and everything, finally I was just like, fuck it. So I sent him that second note. It's like, I, can you just tell me what brush to use and what paper? And I won't bother you again. I just, I'm so frustrated right now. And it was very honest in the way I wrote that. It was, it was just like, just basically how I displayed it out. And maybe 20 minutes later, I got an email back. It was like, okay, you need, uh, stable hair brushes, zero to triple zero, Sumi ink. Here's how you clean the brushes. Here's the kind of Bristol board you need. And I was like, oh my God. And it was like, the, I mean, in my mind, it was like, this is just like, you know, someone's come down from Mount Olympus and like, you know, touched me on the shoulder and been like, you know, go, go forward, kid. You know, here's your, here's your thing. And so I, I you know, just, it just happened organically. Like I sort of, he told me in that email, I, uh, he's like, you're going to hate your first thousand ink drawings. Just to so just get them done. And so I was like, fuck it. You know, I'll just start doing a thousand eight drawings. And it was a way to correct my perfectionism, you know, and rather than be like, try to make every drawing great, be like, no, I'm just going to suck. I'm going to suck for a thousand. And so I'm just, <laughs> and I just started cranking through them. And I think anyone know he saw that. So I, was, I had a folder I started that was just like the first thousand. So it's one, two, three, four. And I was cranking them out. And so he would start commenting on them. Then we'd have a sort of a back channel. Then it turns out philosophically, I don't know if it's because of the comics or just a, a weird coincidence, there's a lot of things that, I was thinking and feeling at that time, philosophies, politics, economic policy, that kind of thing. Things you wouldn't expect from a comic book artist or a young guy, in my case. And so we back-channeled, and we just became really good friends, and he just kept encouraging me. And eventually, when I moved to New York, I was working as his, as his assistant, and I was I had a 24-hour security pass to the Flatiron Building. And the first professional comic I ever drew, which was for uh, Ghostface Killer, I did it like, you know, overnight in the, in the Flatiron building by myself while Paul wasn't in the studio. Wow. I'm leaving out a lot. How much time did it take to go from Boise and then to New York? Um, I wanted to go to New York in 2007, 2008. So in between everything I just described to you, I became the youngest store manager of a Starbucks at 21. I decided not to do comics for a little bit. And then two years later, I was running a million-dollar Starbucks store, which is kind of hilarious to think about now in hindsight. And so I was going to try to transfer to Starbucks in New York, you know, take, a, take like basically a demotion just to get to New York because I, I just I knew I needed to be there. I wanted to be – at the time, there was still a very robust comic book community there. And then the recession hit. Then I wasn't working at Starbucks anymore. And so it ultimately took me till 2013 to get there. And how that happened, you know, again, us, you know, meeting at Sun Valley just on the street kind of randomly, the, the way I got to New York is very similar. I, I was at a, I was at my first San Diego Comic-Con in 2009, and I was, we were kind of, I was with my buddy from Boise, um, whom you have not met, named Shay, who's also an artist. 
I convinced him to drive down with me. So we drove from Boise to San Diego, which was epic. <laughs> he never been on a road trip before even, so that was even better. So we're kind of chasing Paul around. Like I'm, at this point, we're friends. I have his number. And he's like, I'm going to be here at this panel. I'm going to be here. And so I, we were at the Hyatt, which is kind of like one of the hot spots, like at the con, if you're not in the con officially. And so I'm with Paul, and this is before like Avatar came out. We're sitting with a bunch of people from Paramount. They're like, oh, yeah, it's just Pocahontas in space. I was like, what? Like, and there's this kid. I, the only way I can describe it, this kid who's just at the table with us, and I can't figure out. He's not really talking. He looks like, for lack of a better way of describing, his his mom dressed him. You know, it just it looked out of place. I I think well, I know very easily you could have just overlooked this guy and been like, you know, well, he's not a mover and a shaker. Obviously, he's just probably someone's cousin or something. But I really just wanted to know who he was, and his name was Josh. He was in, in he was in New York and he was just a big comic book fan and he had just tried to write his first comic and it was actually really good he handed it to me I mean he didn't even know how to talk to people at the time he's like here's my comic you know um, and I was like oh and I read it and I was like oh my god this is I mean it was some heavy shit but it was like it was a very well written comic and he'd gotten a really good artist professional artist to do it which is also pretty uncommon and so I, I got to know him I'd go when I'd go and visit New York we'd hang out and uh, like a bunch of us I sort of my So you ended up going into nature. And so nature kind of became this place where you were able to kind of heal and then, you know, allow the talent. Yeah, yeah. Started healing. But I think once the healing starts in a way, the the, uh, talent and like whatever skill of creativity that is 
can act as this kind of other transformational thing to basically help transform that kind of dark place or like that negativity, whatever it might be. Because I think as people who are making stuff, we, we don't forget that there's always something greater happening within this creative exchange. And like, we might just see it as bad luck. But I mean, you know, for me, I do think there are deeper, deeper worlds around us in this three dimensional space. So I mean, going to the woods, can you talk about that? With trail maintenance, you're not going around cutting tr- like live trees down. Like you're you're moving, you're clearing the trail. That's literally what you're doing. And there's usually like a corridor of like six feet across, six feet up, something like that. But you're in wilderness areas, and so you can't bring machinery into there. And a wheel technically would qualify as a machine in that in that case. So you know you're having to move, say, a hundred foot long tree that's forty inches in diameter falls lengthwise down the trail. You've got to use a crosscut saw or an axe to cut it into manageable pieces, which, I mean, there's not a lot of manageable pieces of something that big. It's very time-consuming, you know, so you're working 13, 15-hour days. Basically, my body was, I I grew up doing construction, working on trucks. You know, I'd get on a truck in the summers in Ohio when I was 15, and they'd send me to Boston with somebody because I looked like I was 18. They're like, if anybody asks, just tell me you're 18. And I was accustomed to very hard work, and this broke me. It broke me mentally um, and physically, and I remember because I mean, like, I mean, you're you're not seeing anybody. That I, it, it's hard to put it into context for people who are listening that have never really been out somewhere. Like, you know, there's it's not like I didn't go for a hike, uh, like off, out of a parking lot. Like we were 60 miles back. Oh yeah, you there are was in no infrastructure. Oh yeah, you are in the backcountry. You are living yes. the Patagonia um, advertisement. <laughs> Yeah, well, what's funny is uh, there's this company called Filson that I'd, I'd been in love with since I was, like, a teenager because my stepdad had, like, their stuff, and he would wear it when he was working. And it's, like, it basically a how-to-not-die-outside clothing company that's been around since 1897. And yeah. so it was, and it was started for people who were loggers and people going up to the Yukon for the gold rush. And so I wore my Filson stuff to go do this. And that, that in and of itself is crazy. Cause, I mean, like the crosscut saws we're carrying, modern crosscut saws aren't, aren't forged steel. They're very brittle. So the, the crosscut saws we were using were about 100 years old. that had been sandblasted, you know, cleaned up. Uh, the handles were from the previous century. I mean, so it, it was this really odd, kind of amazing <laughs> situation I was in where, you know, the only thing modern really had, you know, we had our phones to take pictures until, like, the battery died. But uh, we had, like, a little, like, you know, camp stove, and everything else is just, like, nothing new. <laughs> like, nothing nothing that was, like, hadn't been around in the 19th century. What kind of tents did you have, and then how long were you out for at a time? Like, 15 uh, I days? I just did a two-week hitch. That's, that's all I did. Um, everybody else did the whole summer. And it's funny, because, like, you think that two weeks isn't enough to have, like, a mental shift. But, like, when it's, it's so – it, it's hard to describe how fucking weird – it is to be that far back, barely seeing people. Like, there was a day where we were cutting a, tr- a big-ass tree that had fallen kind of diagonally across the trail in a family from Seattle, because Seattle was only about 90 miles away. They were doing a day hike, and, the, and it was like two kids, a wife and a dad. The dad was bringing up the rear, and you had to actually climb through this tree to get through it to the other side. And so we, we saw him kind of exchange pleasantries, and when you're on the trail trail maintenance crews are kind of like the rock stars 
you know, because we're the ones that are like making sure you have a way to get through. And so this guy, I remember just clearly seeing he had like a crisp flat top, you know, and like, you know, short shorts and like, he just looked like he was going out for a PT run. And about 40 minutes later, he came back and there was three of us. And he's like, Hey, you know, I just got back from Iraq. I've done like three tours. I know what it's like to be out in the heat and doing mind numbing work. I, I just wanted to bring you guys these and handed us like a handful of Jolly Ranchers. It's like, we started crying. It just, it, I'm, I'm emotional now about it, about fucking candy. It's like, you're, you're willingly stripping yourself of everything. You know, we're, we're carrying, I had a 70 pound bag, pound bag uh, or pack when I went in because we're, I'm carrying my food. I'm carrying the equipment that I'm going to need to use, you know, my sleeping bag, part of the tent. It just, I don't, it's, it's really hard to describe mentally where you're at. So when some stranger shows up and, and just gives you this kindness, it even, it's just a Jolly Rancher, it's just the act of, of that, that, that gesture. And, and I think that's where it's like, you know, these are the things that stick with me now, especially, and that's where you talk about the healing. And I had to, I had to take my body to a point where it, the, the physical pain eclipsed my emotional pain. And then, and then I was able to start kind of healing after that. Yeah. And then even as science begins to learn more, I mean, another, you know, more new age thinker, uh, Eckhart Tolle, he talks about the uh, pain body. And then I think that kind of, relates to this uh, soma psychology where it basically says the body is like a library that stores all of the trauma physical and emotional oh wow yeah and then what's even crazier is i was talking to like a grad student a psychology grad student and something they study is there's some critical trauma and it's basically like ten thousand hours and then once your body hits ten thousand hours that's when you need to like you know start to seek counseling, start to think about self-care, health care. And, and what's, what's odd is I never thought I would get a chance to talk about it because a lot of the people on the podcast, regardless of what they're doing, if they're in the entertainment industry, if they're a freelance photograph journalist, if they're a CNN journalist for 10 years, if they're a teacher, if they're a writer-director, if they're a producer – you know, there is this very real 10 year, almost, you know, seven to 10 year critical trauma that's built up. And it's not necessarily like war torn battle scars, but I mean, you know, if you're a CNN producer, how many different pulse nightclub shootings can you go to before you're like, I've covered this for three months. I mean, you're going to have PTSD eventually and not be able to work, which that was on the episode Chris Lett, I believe. He is a former CNN producer, now freelance journalism, actually covering stories on what he loves. And so he's really, really passionate about kind of the overfishing of, of different oceans and then also different land projects within Ethiopia like on, on the note of like Chris sort of being able to step back and, and sort of evaluate things like you're saying one of the things that I came out of this whole thing with which again I'm skipping over a lot is that not that this is my mission but I, I'd say outside of being a storyteller I always had empathy for other human beings but dealing with the trauma and, and specifically just what happened with those two people and then what it, le- it led to a chain of deaths actually that was just they were all related um, it, it, I, I realized that somehow along the way I became equipped to talk about it 
in a way that most people don't talk about it. And it's something that I encountered other people, older people. In fact, I had a, a friend named Ken Durden who, when I met him, was in his late 80s. And he lived downtown Boise, and he'd shuffle around by himself, always smiling. Had been a, a, a tail gunner and a B-24 Liberator in World War II in the Pacific. Had gone through the entire Pacific theater, the whole the whole experience of the war since 'Cause you know, the more stories the oh, better. Yeah. I got room for a couple. <laughs> yeah, I mean like uh one of the, what's crazy, so there was a guy that was on the plane with them from Columbus, Ohio, where I'm from, and I can't remember his last name, his first name was Billy, I remember that. And in and a liberator, there's a the ball gunner position, which is what you'd think it's it's like a turret, like a half moon underneath the bottom of the plane with guns sticking out, fifty caliber guns. And unlike a you know a flying fortress like a B twenty nine where you can get into that turret from the inside of the plane, you had to get into the ball turret of a, of a liberator on the ground. And then when you were airborne through hydraulics, they would crank that ball down uh, so that you could move, you know, do the full three sixty. So in air, the hydraulics blew out on Billy's turret, which means that like they have to land on Billy. Like there's no way around it. Like so. Ken and the crew, they're apologizing to him. You know, they're, you know, he's like, you got to do what you got to do. You know, you can't fly around. I mean, everybody's going to die or Billy dies. Ken seemed to imply that, that Billy might have taken care of it himself before they actually landed, but he didn't get that specific. But ultimately, he, they had to scrape him off the, the fucking runway. But, you know? like, there was uh, no way for, like, Billy to parachute out, obviously, or, like, wedge No, there's no way. Yeah. There's no way. It's like, it's, it's like, it's it's just it's the worst position to be in, like and that and that's where like the, the Liberator was a prototype going into World War II. It was, there was a lot of things that just like they if you look at a lot of like World War II equipment and planes and stuff like there's Mark One, Mark Two, Mark Four. Like they're they're like they're improving it as as it as the war goes on. Not really because it's like oh let's just make it more badass. It's like oh let's make it like you know safer. Let's make it sa- safer. You know, um, you know, we were, they were figuring things out, you know, and so, I mean, it's just one of the stories. And so, so what's funny is like, I knew this before 2011. And so like the, the day that like the, the real brief version of this is my friend Lauren gets diagnosed with terminal cancer. There's a lot leading up to that. So we are all sitting in a room and we're like, okay, Lauren's dying. No way, no way around it. So I have, we all have a friend named Michael Birkenshaw who is a guy that is essentially a roustabout. I don't know if you know what the term traveling kid is. Like, there's people who hop trains and okay. work hard, hard and have, have, like, Rottweilers and, like, busk on the street. So Michael had become one of those, and he was burning out hard. And, you know, he Michael had been, like, the star of the debate team in high school and first year of college and then just turned into a complete just alcoholic druggie. And I was one of the only people that had the number to his burner phone. So I called him. I was like, hey, Lauren's dying. They say it's going to be six months. I think it's going to be sooner. I was right. And I was like, I'll pay for an airplane ticket or a bus ticket. Just you need to come back here and see him. He's like, no, 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 no. I need to hop on a train. I need, I need, I need to think about this. This is heavy. I'm like, no, man, just please just let me buy you the ticket. He's like, no, 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 no. So 
he dies on the train like four days later, you know, outside of Portland, Oregon, trying to get back to see Lauren. And so I go into 10th Street Station, which is like, I, for lack of a better way of saying it, like the cheers of Boise. I'm honored to say that there's a page of Carver screwed to the wall in there. But uh, I, I walked in and I just wasn't, now I'm more aware of how like, I project myself. But like, I, I just, I'm normally pretty outgoing. And so I wasn't outgoing that day. I sat at the end of the bar where I don't, I usually would sit at a table and I see Ken and, you know, I mean, like he just kind of walks over. He look. He kind of like tilts his head and looks at me. He's not a very tall guy. He looks like uh, the the grandfather in King of the Hill. Yeah. The best way I can describe how he looked, almost exactly. And um, he's like, "Somebody died, didn't they?" And I was like, "I'm looking at it. I'm like, oh, man, I'm getting emotional again." I, I was like, "Yeah." And he's like, "You want to talk about it?" And I was like, "Ken, honestly, I do, but like, no, no offense to you, you're the last person I ever want to or ever think." to talk to about it because like your deaths are in this like grand, you know, greatest generation fighting evil sort of narrative. And he's like, no, there's no, there's no story. It's just all death. He's like, it's not, there's no different, especially the first time it happens. And so he and I just sat and we just talked about death, like in an abstract, not, well, not an abstract in a very literal way, but like not about specific people dying, but just sort of like how he lived from the time that he got back from the war uh, up until, you know, 2011. This is a man who I found out, the woman he he, he was going to marry, he got the Dear John letter thing. You know, he was going to marry her when he got back. Um, and then while he was over there, he got a letter from her saying she married somebody else. His two brothers died the same day in the European theater. And that's why he kept flying missions. He didn't fucking care. He was just like, I'm just going to keep going. I got nothing. And so he, he goes back and he marries some random chick. And unbeknownst to anybody, in a in a in a like a trunk, he has a picture of the woman that he wanted to marry, that was planning on marrying. Uh, he keeps secret for seven de- well six decades. And after his wife dies of Alzheimer's, because that's why he was living downtown. She was in a home. He was downtown. He pulls it out. He he, sh- he brings it to me. He likes he, he has me come over to the apartment to show it to him. He's like, this is the woman I was in love with, and proceeds to tell me this whole story about like you know. I mean, it, he would. What's interesting to me is he would tell stories about before they'd go overseas, they'd be doing basic training, then they go to you know paratrooper school, and then he'd be like, "Yeah, we were like fucking like jackrabbits. We'd be behind, a, we'd be at a house party, you know, and like you know, we you'd look for like where's Bill, where's Caroline, and Bill and Caroline were like two feet behind you, like fucking behind the couch, you know. It, it was just very like when you think about like, oh yeah, they all thought they were gonna die, but you know, I think we all hear Tom Brokaw's head in the back of our, our mind when we're thinking about like World War Two and, and World War Two veterans that they were just, like, somehow, like, just just fucking stamped as, like, these honorable, like, sort of, like, iconic figures in our Stoic. minds. No, they were just, like, 18-year-old kids that were terrified and horny. So it was, just, it was really interesting to sort of just get the understanding from him, like, oh, like, this, that actually, that's something that no one ever talks about because they want to kind of push this narrative of the, the greatest generation. But Ken, Ken is the person that kind of, like, made me realize that like there is something more to like there's you can help somebody if that makes sense like there's there's a possibility of coming out on the other side of it and like just being somebody who understands that pain in another person not the person who goes oh i'm so sorry for your loss which that's something you say when you don't know what to say when someone says so-and-so has died in my life you're like oh my i'm so sorry for your loss if you really want to be empathetic in my opinion you look at them in the eye and you just nod and maybe you put your hand on their shoulder because there's nothing that can be said. 
that actually happened this this week to me, and I didn't know what to say. And so another coworker said that, and then, of course, uh, the uh, girl whose grandfather died, she was like, no, nah, dude, he was like 95. Like, that dude was, like, peaced out and waiting. He Like, last two weeks, he was eating ice cream every single week. You know, every day, that's all he would eat because he's like, I'm eating ice cream because I'm about to get, be out. You know, yeah, Rocky Road, bitches. <laughs> you know, <Yeah>. like, <laughs> you know, like mint chocolate chip. You know, <laughs> bring me a Sunday. Okay. You know, in a way, that's why I'm publishing this script because the script that I wrote is, in a way, it's it's about how we age gracefully as humans, and then how do we deal with death in a way that, you know, looks at the world with a bigger picture and that we're not trapped by the trauma. You know, so I think it's interesting. So I'm curious, what happened to the woman that he fell in love with? I, at this time, I've now like like kind of whittled away my quote unquote real jobs as I'm getting better and more work in comics. And so I'm working at a bagel shop in downtown Boise, and I'm like, Ken, come to the bagel shop now. I'm working here. Just come hang out in the morning. And so Ken would come in, and he had a little sign um, that he'd sit on it on the table he's sitting at. It was right by the counter. It just said trouble. And, and it was just like, he just, it would just sit there. And, and then people would like walk by and smile. And I was like, what's this about? He's like, I'm 10 miles of bad road. And like, and so, um, so the owner, Sri, um, I would, well, so he, he, he tells me about the picture. Sri is just like, oh my God, I, we got to find this woman. And I just didn't have the time. I wanted to, but I'm just like, I, I forget what was going on. There was some project I was working on or something. And so, we, she talked to somebody else at 10th Street, and this person at 10th Street, Maggie, who's this amazing woman. I love Maggie. We had the same birthday. She's probably 35, 40 years older than me. But Maggie tracks her down. Maggie finds her through an obituary that she's mentioned in, in Wisconsin, where she, he thought she was. He'd actually gone there like three times to try to find her, like over the years, before his wife even died. And couldn't find her, couldn't find her. And so Maggie contacts the family and says like you know my name's such and such i'm calling on behalf of ken burden who used to know your your aunt and i can't remember the, the woman's name and they're like oh my god ken burden like they knew who he was and like oh my god no we we know exactly who ken is you know aunt sally so-and-so would talk about ken all the time that how they were like you know before the war and all this stuff and so maggie's like well ken would love to come and see her and just all he wanted to do, and this is like, like, I'm pretty jaded when it comes to romance. Like now, I'm like a hopeless, hopeless romantic. But this is like the kind of shit that just melts my heart. He just wanted to have a dance with her. He just wanted to go and have a dance with her. And they're oh, like, wow. we don't think it's going to be a good idea. She has Alzheimer's, just like his, his wife. And they're like, it, we just were worried it would confuse her. You know, basically tell him that like she, ta she thought about him all the time. Like we, that, you know, she was very important to her. It was, it was this bittersweet thing. Cause like Ken, he's like, okay, I found her. Like he was glad that he found her. It made him happy to know that she'd talked about him, but you could just tell that it was just like metaphorically and literally had been carrying this woman around with him since, since the war, during the war. And you know, like I, I wonder so much of this stuff that I'm telling you became Carver, by the way, this is like, this is what became my first book Carver. Like, um, you know, oh, wow. even though I didn't like distill the narrative like it, it's like all this shit went into it. Wow. 
Ken, I mean, he's a veteran and the woman, she's an adult and maybe she has Alzheimer's, but you know what? Make life interesting for everybody. Why don't you yeah, let him meet? I know. Why don't you let him dance? Fuck it. Dress everybody up like the 1940s and just have Ken I Teller. I double down on the shit. Yeah, you know what I mean? Lean into it hard. You know, create the most awkward, you know, dance at this home, you know, that's taking care of her. I mean, like, healthy or not. But if, if she was in extreme cases of Alzheimer's, maybe not. You know, gosh, just heartwarming, heart-melting is, is love. Through war yeah. and through all these things, this idea of a human that really just relates to this emotion and, you know, and how it can be there. And then... Wow. I mean, it's a movie. It's yeah, a movie, uh, yeah. For sure. This is a movie. I, like I was like, I mean, even the way you told it, it's almost like a flashback, you know, from your point of view, and then as you get to know this, this person. I, I mean, like it, 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 I, it, it bothered me too. Like I was just like, this is bullshit. Like they need to, like they just, it's. I'm sure they're overwhelmed by like taking care of her or all this different stuff. But just like, like you said, just fucking let them do it. Like, yeah, I fuck mean, it, dude. They killed the people. I mean, like, he basically yeah. had to kill people while she could, like, you know, maintain whatever sense of femininity was happening then, which probably she was trapped by society. And so in the end, yeah. you know, whatever, you know, whatever came through, that guy didn't. She remained so. Yeah. She remained so till the end because other people were making decisions for her. Yeah. And it was like she needed to basically, you know, the generational karma that she was trying to not pass, you know, the future generations were holding. So. So that's interesting. So, I mean, going going to Carver, so you're in the bagel shop, you're learning all this, and then ha had you gone to New York at this point? Or, like, all this was basically fuel for the fire for, like, you no, to— I'd been, I'd, been, I'd been to New York uh, going back and forth, like, traveling for visits. I was like, you know, this is about, the, about a year before, you know, it becomes a year and a half before, like, I, Josh is like, come move to New York now. Okay. So, like, I had written—, I'd, I'd written Harbor Repair story at the end of 2010 after I had gone to uh, a residency with Paul down in this place called ACA, the Atlantic Center for the Arts in New Smyrna Beach, Florida. Fucking amazing place. Uh, check it out. I, I, any of you or anybody listening, because it's, it's like a Bond villains compound in the middle of Jurassic Park, and they have film editing suites, music uh, halls, sculpture studios, and like they have three different residencies basically a year. And three phases with three different sub mediums in them. Like, just look it up; it's amazing. So I, I had this like my first like real art artist experience with other artists. They were all comic book creators. And then earlier in the year, I had met a girl named Catherine in Boise in 2009. And this is like before the trauma. And this is like I'm on an upward trajectory. I'm talking to Marvel. You know, they're sending me scripts to keep testing and get better and and, and give me uh, you know advice on how to like clean up and get get good enough to work for them. And so I meet Katie, she's like 21, I'm 24. That seemed like a giant gap at the time for me. I, she's attractive blonde, just like, I'm like a t dark hairy tattoo girl. Elvira is my, my, my picture of a perfect woman and she's just opposite. And I really resisted for a long time. Short version of the story is I fell in love with her. And then she fell in love with me and she was leaving for France in like two months, so she panicked and just fucking <laughs> kind of like broke it off. And then I, then we couldn't stay away from each other. And so we basically, when she left for France, we're in this sort of like odd, like we're not in a relationship. But we were like just 
so wrapped up in each other. And so the plan was I was going to go visit her in France after she got settled in like March. And so that's what I ended up doing. I've been in love with the lost generation uh, since I was pretty young, you know, Hemingway and Ezra Pound and Fitzgerald's and all that stuff. And so I would, and I'd always wanted to go to France and Paris specifically, but other parts. And she was in Aix-en-Provence. And so I went there and there's a whole fucking Paris story that I wrote as a result. But I came up with the idea of Carver while I was at a cafe in Aix-en-Provence. So this like kind of hunter, mustachioed, Tom Selleck, Ernest Hemingway looking dude. And then we had this horrible, horrible, amazing night in Paris. <laughs> like the last weekend I was there. Because I was there for a while. Mm-hmm. And I wrote that as like the framework for the original Paris story. And then when, and it was just this like kind of sappy before sunrise thing. Um, like I, I think it's strong. I really liked it. But it just, it was just like, it's that kind of story that like a sad young man writes, not a traumatized young man writes. It, it, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing that you read and like now I read it and go like, oh God, this kid just doesn't, he has not lived yet. You know, there's, this is, this is something that's been inflated and things like heartbreak is the worst thing that can happen to you. And so I, I was ready to go. I had written that thing. I was going to start it in March of 2011. And that's when we found out about Lauren. Like Lauren had gone ghost for a while and we couldn't, I mean, we couldn't get him on the phone. I went over with my friend Heather to his apartment, and like, I was like, Lauren, if you were in the apartment, I'm going to kick the door in. If you're not, I apologize. I will pay for the door damage. And like, and like, I just sort of click, 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 and like, the door opens, and he has lost like 30 pounds. Wow. He's like, I got the flu. And we're like, whoa, you definitely don't have the flu. So we made him go to the hospital, and he was fucking terminal. He was, he was already death warrant signed. He, he had stopped taking, he'd gotten off his parents' insurance who were like Mormon missionaries at the time. And he had to take a certain medication that would prevent liver boils from like appearing on, on the, on the actual organ that would turn into ulcers that would then turn into tumors. Mm. And he thought the way of dealing with it was to just drink a shit ton of plat past blue ribbon. Um, oh no. So yeah, I mean, what are you going to do? Like, yeah. um, and, and so, but that was, man, that was some beautiful shit though. Like I, like, you know, help, like we, we were all very close at this time, this friend group that I had, and we all agreed that we're like, there's, we're not going to, there will be time for this to be weird later. We're not going to be weird around Lauren right now. Like we're just going to be the same pithy, dark humored people that we've always been. And he's always been, and it doesn't matter that he's dying right now. Like we're going to help our friend. Yeah. It was well, weird, you know, well, like, uh, and I feel like beautiful. I feel like. The older I get, the more, you know, I know that I'm going to have to deal with that and the frailty of my own life and some of the decisions yeah. that I make now. Um, one of the ones I heard, and this isn't, you know, to try to make everything better because, you know, really I think that's why I like the Buddhists in a way because, you know, they're like, hey, life is suffering. We're all going to, you know, this is temporary. You know, know that there's change. And, like, some mm-hmm. some ways when they qualify things, it allows – you know, you to see those other truths in some of the other religions or faiths or like Id- ideologies, but the one that mm-hmm. comes from out of left field, it totally comes from the music festival scene, you know, so I have to go work this job and I'm on a beach in Costa Rica at a music festival and, you know, the previous year or in a couple previous years, someone like passed away. Like, I don't know how, I don't know when, whatever. 
Yeah. And it could have been at this festival. It could have been at another festival, but because it was just a story. But the story was everybody's on some type of psychedelic, and a body washes up on the beach. But before the body washes up, someone sees like you know everybody's tripping, and then the person that tells me the story, they're the one that saw it. But they almost see like a flash of light, as if a star takes off from the earth and shoots up. And then they're wow. like, "That's weird." And then all of a sudden, you know, three minutes later, body washes up. A body. Yeah, and so I feel wow. like that story to me really helped, you know, solidify this kind of like reincarnation reality that we all might live in, but we're not really recognizing, you know. And then if that's true, then it's like, you know, this this, this physical body is like a weird eggshell, and maybe it is like this, you know, transition point or like whatever it is, but. You know, as someone who's creative and like always thinking of stories to tell, I have to bend my mind in a lot of weird ways. And so sometimes I'm like, okay, cool. I'm going to stick that one into the file. You know, I don't think it's going to. Tell, tell yeah. me more about this. Cause I mean, I'm like, I'm just, I'm, I'm so agnostic. It's not even funny. You know, it's like, I, it's like, it's just. So what, I'm what just, I can I imagine if we like cut it with a scientific like knife, right? So like. The eye can only see one octave of light, right? So, like, mm-hmm. there, there's this stuff called ultraviolet film. And, like, I don't know yeah. if, you know, you take a photograph of what seems to be a tree and, and a field, and to us it looks green, but the photograph gets processed because it's only seeing the, the UV light. And then it's like a pink tree. The grass is, like, white, you know, ye- yellow. Photos. Yeah, like it, like, it just looks like a whole other world landscape. And so all it's doing is saying that that film sees ultraviolet light. So I think what happens when you take psychedelics, you know, you start to see things because I think your pupils stay dilated more. And so you actually see outside of the normal octave range, I think, you know, which is why stuff starts to look wavy and there's hallucinogens. I could be wrong, you know. And so I think within that, that that distortion of space. And so, you know, I also you know, go to the idea of like when people are passing, you know, there's this one Taoist thing and it says like, okay, after someone's death, like you might feel that person for one to two to three weeks afterwards. And then, you know, it like in this translated text, it's like, because, you know, the spirit is like returning to the original essence and like, as it's returning to this original essence, you know, cause they just called it something like source, you know, they were like, yeah, it kind of visits, it just has to visit and see. You know, and like I've definitely, you know, oddly enough, there was uh, my sister's really good friend. When she passed, I just had a moment and I just had to hug. I, you know, I, you know, she passed maybe a day or two. You know, it was a very tragic accident, a car wreck. And like I just had to hug the open air. You know, like I just had a moment and I was like, okay, if this is real, I just want to hug you to let you know, you know. The closest I could ever get to that, or I've gotten to that, um, is, you know, I'll, like, have this sort of, like, need to just get drunk around a campfire. And, like, I think maybe it's just the only way I can do it. And I'll just start having a conversation with one of them. Like, we're, like, but like consciously, it's just, like, I'm just saying things just to sort of, like, exercise the thought for myself, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, yeah. I will, I, will tell, I will tell you the one thing that I am really vehement about. I know from, like, a health standard reason there's no way you can do this, but, like, I think I think the like the Western practice of dealing with death is all fucked up. Oh and, like, yeah, to me, the most it's bad. It's logical like... thing would be light the body on fire. That just just return it. It's energy. Just like 
the idea of like trying to cling to the idea of a person of like let's no let's just like make them look like a mannequin so we can all walk past and then like then let's put the mannequin in the gray in, in a box underground and just so that like we can kind of know where their bones are that seems so fucking macabre and weird to me oh yeah oh yeah and then even that's weird because I've been researching some other stuff and it goes more into different types of like uh you know, voodoo, weird magic traditions for, you know, one of these stories that I'm looking at. Nice, dude. It's going down. It's totally going down where you're at. Is it an ambulance? Oh, nice. Nice. Is it an ambulance or, or, or is it a uh, fire truck? It's a fire engine. Fire engine. Because we were talking about hot things setting the ears on yeah. fire. Indeed. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, like, I think that uh, there's a lot to be said for, like, I'm a, I'm a, not like necessarily as a writing tool, but I, I was always fascinated with um, Joseph Campbell and, you know, the, the, the notion that there are, like, shared elements of so many different religions and just uh, myths, history, people, like, countries, histories, religions, histories, the overlap and how, like, you know, we're all sort of like, no, 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 this is my story of the boat and the flood. Nah, well, it's actually, like, also you know, Islam story too. Like, uh, and so, you know, I, I, that's why I think I'm so agnostic. I'm just like, man, I can't, I'm so human. I can't even wrap my head around the concept of it's a mathematical equation. It's a big white dude with a beard. Um, Oh yeah. Yeah. And then I think in some way, I mean, there's even points within history where there were societies that were just fusions. They were like, no, we, we, we agreed to let everybody exist. We're cool. Do you want, you yeah. know, like, what do you need? Do you, like, do you need arrowheads? Do you need metal pots? Cool. Because no matter what, you got to cook. <laughs> so it's like, yeah. you know, there, yeah. there, there are places. You, yeah. Well, even with this, or, you know, I didn't think we were going to get political, but even with this Iran thing happening, you know, the news that we're seeing, I'm like, you know what? I do Tai Chi. I've been following some, like, Tai Chi people, you know, all over the world. And one of them is the Iranian Tai, tai Chi Federation guy. And then I'm like, you know what? Oh, wow. What if we just literally make Instagram and make this whole digital world funny? And all of a sudden, I organize a cultural religious trip for Tai Chi to visit Iran. You know, and then just just to create images of peace, to images yeah. of like, are you absurd? We can do Tai Chi together. Why would we go to war? Like, you can yeah. just be in the same room as them and move slowly together. So what's <laughs> add words to it and see what happens, guys. And so I'm thinking about this like weird stuff like that because with the way the news cycle is going, if they're looking for images of war, then as a creator, you know, creating stories, uh, published screenplays, podcasts, and you know things to move society and humans to a different place. It's like injecting ourselves into that discussion. But in a human way, that's like, no, religious freedom, Tai Chi, let's all laugh at this, guys. Because war is funny, well, too, yeah. isn't it? You know? Just let's draw the reality, you know? like. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny because, I mean, like, I think that's something that I underestimate a lot, that, like, I'm putting content into the world and that people consume it and people consume it differently. And that you're, I mean, like, no matter what the science is or how you approach it, if it's spiritual, if it, if it is scientific, you are introducing something to a system that was not there prior to it, you introducing it. So it's going to ripple in some way. It might not be big, but it will ripple. And so, you know, it's like, not that there's like some juju, like, you know, 
like oh we we're like we're shamans you know although that's kind of what storytellers were for a long time oh yeah 100 percent. i think it's actually keeping an oral history you know going into the superhuman aspect of humans i do think there are you know people who can be more psychic and i think as storytellers we do inherit the shaman or the prophet reality whether we want to not prophetic in the way that we like start a religion, but prophetic in the way where you might draw something, a certain reality, you might make a short film, and maybe the way that the street kids in the short film treated each other is reflectant of the larger change that happens through the laws, you know, in that country. Just be human with yeah. the laws, not not oppressive or based on controlling the poor, you know. Uh, to go back to your psychic thing for a second, I think that there's, I think I think there's a lot of things that we talk about that we use sort of like big generalized terms for that probably are rooted in something, aren't necessarily explained very well, or they're looked at from the wrong perspective. Like as an example, I was really big into sleight of hand magic. I guess you could say I still am, but I don't practice the physical art of it anymore. But with magic, I mean, basically, it's been around for thousands of years in some form or another as either entertainment or as like actually a part of spiritual procedures. One of the things that people really underestimate about magic, because I mean, for one, everybody just imagines Job now from Arrested Development, but um, it, you, you become very intuitive around about people. You know, you're, you're collecting information and you're chunking it and uh, you're, you're, you're really analyzing psychology, people's psychology and the blind spots people have. And I, I, when I was in New York, I was at my version of 10th Street in New York one time, and um, I had met this woman named Dr. Linda Dahl, who's a badass. She was the first female, uh, I guess you would say, ringside medic for professional boxing. Um, she's also like a throat doctor, and, and like it was, she had this whole double life, basically. But I, I learned that about her later. Uh, she just published a book last year. It was pretty awesome. But um, I, we were there one night, and neither of us really wanted to talk about what we did but when we met, and somehow like we were just sort of guessing. And I guessed that she was a doctor and that she's probably a surgeon. Didn't get to the throat part, but pretty much guessed everything. So the next time I saw her, she's with her sister and her brother-in-law. She's like, oh, oh. and I was like, I've been drinking. I was three sheets to the wind. She said, do the thing you did with me. Do the thing with me. Do it to him. Guess what he does? And I, I swear Josh, I looked at the guy. I looked up and down. And like, like through like half open eyes, I'm like, yeah, you're probably private military, like some blur thing or be more likely you're probably a CIA you probably work at like a, a, a black ops site or something like you know uh, just just real half-assing it uh, like I'm well, not half-assing it but I looked at him and that was like that was the thing that came out of my mouth He's like we need to go outside and I was like what he's like we need to go outside right now and I, I go out and I'm like what the fuck is going on and he's just like how did you know and I'm like excuse me he's like how did you know I'm like know what he's like I work for the CIA and I'm like, oh, fuck me. Like, <laughs> You're like dog, uh, I'm just good at shit. <laughs> well, I mean, I had to walk in through it. I had, to, I had to say, like, okay, like, you know, it had a lot to do with, like, what he was wearing, how he wore it, uh, like, uh, things that seemed anachronistic within this whole system that he was presenting. And, like, I had to walk him through it. Walk me through like, it. You know, can you walk me through it? <laughs> yeah, I can walk you through it. Okay, so, like, so he was, like... First of all, he's, he was about, like, 5'10", 5'11", like, not, like, cut, but, like, you could tell the guy worked out, and, and it was just older and put some weight on. So he is, he, again, has a well-maintained, like, sort of crew cut, 
immaculately shaved, like he shaved clean his cheeks, except for this sort of like shaggy Scooby-Doo thing on his chin. So the first thing I thought is like, oh, well, this is his way of being unique, but he has to, he has to be able to shave that off in like, you know, five seconds if he, if he gets the call. So already I'm thinking like this guy's military, but he's allowed to do something that's a little bit outside the norm. Like, and so I'm thinking tier one operator at that point, you know, because like a lot of those guys just sort of don't have to meet the same standards. He's wearing an unstylish motorcycle jacket that looked like one of those like sort of like Logan Wolverine jackets from like the original X-Men mm-hmm. that just has like a generic pattern, all black to it. Not high quality, but like a decent jacket, but also immaculately maintained. He's got a weird crew collar shirt, T-shirt, that's like the, the kind that's like almost choking you. Like not like a comfortable one, but it's like it hits the exact rim of the neck. And in my head, I'm like looking at the coat, I'm looking at the shirt, and I'm looking at the jeans, which are like not a high quality denim, kind of like a carpenter short, the kind of, the I'm sorry, carpenter pant, yeah. the kind of pant that would have been cool when this guy was in his 20s. Yeah. And then he's got case. Then he's got case with tennis shoes on that are immaculately white, but scuffed, meaning that like he has used them for a while and maintains them. So at the, I'm looking at all that and go, the only person that I know that would have all that together is is, is military. Like nobody main, no, nobody's going to maintain a pair of case with shoes unless it's so ingrained in you. And everybody I know that's in the military, as, as soon as the general the general person that's just like I'm in, I'm, I'm uh, infantry. You know, when they get out, they get out. They don't. They don't maintain those standards anymore. A lot of times, like they're they're, yeah. they're like you know sloppy. they're, you get they're controlled. Yeah, they they make their beds and stuff in the morning, but they're not like they're not going to polish their fucking tennis shoes. And so, but so not I'm someone that at, still just, gets called in because if he still gets called in, yeah. Oh, geez, good job. Keep going. This is great. So I was just like, uh, so <laughs> before I even said anything about the soldier thing, when I was inside, I was like, I think you ride a motorcycle, but you don't get to ride it that often. Um, and he's like, and, and so when he, and when we brought that up, I was like, that's what, that's why your shoes are scuffed. Like you have, like you, you have the inside part of your toe and your left foot is scuffed where you, you'd be shifting on a, on a motorcycle. And, uh, so I'm like, again, it's just like, I didn't mean to do this. It was just, I, I, it just, it just happened. And, and so like it all painted this picture of somebody who, was very, very, very attached to the military, very, very good at it, and somehow was still in that environment. And it just, in the, in the way he carried himself was very, it's not to diminish anybody who served in the armed forces, it's just that, like, a normal, a basic army guy versus, like, a ranger, there's a there's a big difference. Oh, yeah. You know, oh, yeah. They're, they're there's a dynamic. Army. There's a dynamicness. I, when I was teaching in New York, there was a ranger, and he was on the GI Bill, and he told me that you know what his tours were and how he he had re-enlisted. I asked him to wear shoes to production. He was like, "No, dude, I've wore boots my whole thing. I'm gonna like I was an ex ex Army Ranger, but he was strategic. He didn't have to wear shoes on set. He could wear sandals. I mean, he was he was very he carried himself differently than like another friend of mine who was like a drill sergeant, you know, boot camp drill sergeant kind of grunt style." But then also within all those details, it totally gets you to the point where you're like, and if you were a grunt and then you got the call for the, you know, extra stuff, because it's like after you do your service in the Marines or after yeah. you do your initial tour with whatever service branch, then it's like the higher job offers come in, you know, based off of your service and kind of your yeah. record. And then you can, you know, serve the U.S. in a, in a different way. So, yeah, then you had it because at that point you're like, yeah, you're definitely more 
more rangery than like grunt. Yeah, and you're still going. Like so, in my mind, you're a ranger or you're recon marine, probably. Yeah. And and I just don't knowing some of those guys. No, I mean he was basically. I did get an, what I did get out of him eventually was, and he met Linda's sister at one of the sites they were working at. I, obviously, they couldn't tell me where. I mean, they can kind of give me a region of the world, which you can kind of guess where the region was. But um, he, he, I forget what the technical term is, but like there was a movie, I want to say like four years ago that came out. It was about like a CIA black site that got attacked. And it was like 13 hours, I think it was called, yeah, or something yeah. like that. So like they don't, like the guys that are there, the, the guns that are there are just there. They're not really interacting with like the analysts and the people who are like, the officers of the CIA, these guys are, they work for the CIA, but they're, they're like there to just make sure if shit goes sideways, they're someone to defend these people who were essentially office workers. And so that's what he was doing when, when they were over there. And she was in some kind of translating. I mean, she, she, I, by the time that like, we got to the point where like Linda was like, keep going, keep going. I'm like, I, I'm, I'm good. Like, yeah, I don't want to know what I don't. You're like, I'm, yeah, yeah, like, I'm a storyteller. This is how I got this far. I'm not I'm Sherlock Holmes. I'm fucking watch list, to be honest with you. I mean, like, I mean, it, it was just, it was so, even now it makes me nervous a little bit. Like, because um, it's just like, it was just my brain. And that's why I'm saying, like, I'm not psychic. I could have, I could have played that a certain way. And that's ultimately what I was going with this is that, like, that was just me. I, I just, for a long time, just, I observe, you know? And I, I think that, like, that's part of the reason why I think, uh, Usually, these skills are compartmentalized to certain people, especially in film production. I think I have the kind of eye for observation that a good costumer would have. Costumer would have, because it's like I'm looking at it, saying like, okay, all of this, all of this tells a story about somebody. Like, I, you should be able to drop somebody in front of a camera, and if you have the right actor in the right costume, they're going to they're going to tell a story silently before you even give them lines. I, t- I carry all that over into when I'm drawing a comic. Maybe the skill that we have is that by telling stories, we do develop whatever psychic muscle or ability is within, you know, the human. So I think it's interesting because that level of detail, I think you do have to practice even if you're writing a story. And then if you have to draw it, and then I think imagination is interesting because you can stoke the imagination with kind of all of the false details of a world. Or you can use imagination and then go into in- intuition about the details that you see. And that that's in- how I do it. Yeah, I, that's, yeah. That's the way I do it the second way. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I think it's interesting because it's, it's the choice, right? It's like I can make a fake world or that's a very real world, so let me use those details and my intuition is going to lead me to the reality. You know, because in the end... people who do the, like, the story Bible thing for comics, and they end up with like a fucking 40-page description of everybody, the things, they're, they're, they're like doing the Moby Dick thing where they describe the church pew for like two pages. It's oh, like, yeah, no, that's not know? good. That's not good. That's just an exercise. I feel like... Exactly. Yeah, like, I mean, at some point, you really have to just produce, create, and distribute, which kind of brings me back to uh, Carver. So, so you've discovered Carver, you're in motion on your first piece, and so, you know, what happens now? I mean, like, I mean, it, it's, it, it, was, it went a place I didn't expect it to go for one and and it, it, it happened organically sort of nice. the way you're describing it you know and I, like i'm not i don't believe in the muse i don't believe in the whole like you know oh inspiration will strike i mean sometimes like a better idea shows up for sure but i think i think what it is it's about showing up every day 
chopping wood, carrying water. And sometimes you got to chop wood and carry water for like three years before you get to the idea. I agree uh, 100%. I agree. I support this. I chopped the shit out of some wood and I carried some water this morning, boy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, like, I just, I think it's like amateurs talk about, oh, I need inspiration or I have writer's block. I never had a writer's block in my life because you sit down and you fucking do it. Yep. Like, it's a job. Well, and guess what? Like, Like, sorry to cut you off. The Buddhists say that too because there's this Buddhist level of, of creativity and it says, hey, man creativity comes from being able to plug into the source that source is like when you're happy do you like to walk what is the favorite thing that you like to do oh i like to walk so walk for 15 minutes get on that joy wave come in and sit down and create try not to create that's my thing oh yeah 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 drive whatever it is but it was just recognizing that you know they also said that in order to learn creativity that creativity helps overcome suffering and and basically negates um negative emotion and transforms it into something that's beyond yourself it's basically you're creating this transcendental state that's positive and so other people just rest in that negativity but because of that as the young artist or the young creative person creates they can get locked into their neuroses until they themselves understand that it's just plugging in you know, you know where that source is, and and then you totally went there to overcome trauma, but now guess what? You can just go there. How do you go there? I don't yeah. know. What's happening right now? Pull the creativity from now. Don't stress yourself. You know, the creativity actually is everywhere right now. Like, you don't have to, you know what I mean, jam yourself into a room. You just have to pull it out of the ether. Or better yet, create a lightning-striking environment and then just start bottling the lightning. You know, because well, at some Carver, point, I like, I mean, I like, I mean, I literally inhabited Carver for like a year. Like we were going to, we decided to make a short film, uh, Ron and I, whom, you know, um, mm-hmm. and as I was like, I, 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 I threw that, that first script away. It's just like, oh, this isn't going to work now. Like, and, and, you know, there was just no truth to it anymore. It's a nice little story, but it's just like, it just, so I, I used to write like, like I used to write funny things. I used to write like, like money Python like 10 minute plays that were just irreverent um and i i lost that like it, it went away i can still put humor in it but like i just i don't know what happened uh, like when like everything happened but like i just lost that funny bone but i'm very good now at sort of like chunking the data and like talking about what we've been talking about but like i decided i needed to kind of work through the story and in the i mean i was a theater actor all through high school i almost flunked out of high school actually that was touring so much. Oh, wow. And, Congratulations. And, and so, yeah, question mark. Um, <laughs> also, was on the drag ra- also on the drag race team in high school. It was, a, it was an interesting time. Nice. Um, but, uh, like, I, so I was just, like, we were going to make the short film. We realized we were going to do, like, a fight scene. And, and, and like, the like, I just, I've never, ever stopped. When I, when I think about something, I'm like, well, I, I don't need a fight scene. Well, how would a carver fight? Oh, it'd be the specific kind of way. Like, it wouldn't be, like, kung fu. It'd be, like, very, like, just blunt and kind of, like, unrefined. Oh, how are we going to do that? You know, like, how are we going to train someone for nine months and then, like, you know, do a fight scene that no one else in Boise, Idaho has ever done? I'm like, I'll just do it. You know, like, I don't, I don't, I won't pay myself. I'll just, like, I'll just do it. And then I'll pay the guy who's going to, I'm going to fight and who's going to train me. And so for about a year, like, four times a week, I was going to fight training. And this is like the year after Lauren and Michael died. That was interesting. I mean, that was, uh, like, I, I, I learned a lot. 
about myself grew a lot. Like, so I went from like a year of, I'm using air quotes right now, of like choreographing a fight, which was like essentially like I, there was a five foot three albino who was just kicking my ass four times a week. Uh, we didn't use pads or gloves or anything. I had my nose broken the first day. I was walking around with a mustache and a haircut and like, I wasn't like making people call me Carver. It wasn't like Daniel Day-Lewis or something. It was just that like, I kind of like lived in that mindset for like a year and I really didn't get the story nailed until after I'd, I'd moved to New York and I was working at Filson actually. I, I opened up the store there because a friend of mine knew I was there and knew I loved Filson and like we just, nobody knows what a Filson is in New York. So while I was working there and meeting other filmmakers and other creative people, I finally just sort of cracked the code on it and uh, that's ultimately what happened in the past like week, you know, with me, where I was, I've been, I want to do book two. I kind of have an idea. I had like four different scripts that I'd written and like none of which were perfect to me. And then all of a sudden, like just in this one moment, I was like, it's, it's like in a movie where it's like, just everything fits in a place. And all of a sudden there it is. It's like, oh my God. But you know, like the, the shit that happened that led up to that, just with all the things that had to happen, I just didn't know what they were going to be. And I still had to show up and chop wood and carry water every day. Yeah, it is very, very real. Um, and I also think that's how the talent becomes a muscle. And then, you know, because yeah. at some point, I have a couple processes that I use to basically get get the material out. And then it's pretty much exactly like you said. It's like chop wood, carry wood, carry water, cook. It's basically yeah. like you have to strategize it because then you're leaning on the process, knowing that the creativity is going to come out. But having said that, um, so we're at New York, and then you've opened up the Filson store, and then you've, you've got the first book of Carver, or Carver written. And then what happened after that? Because I know it kind of went on to win some awards. And then, and, <laughs> yeah. and then after that, you uh, left New York. Like most great people, they go to New York, or L.A., or Chicago, or Austin. Mm-hmm. And then they leave, and then they go somewhere yeah. else where they can just create. So, I was learning. I mean, the, I mean, the whole thing, like, Carver became the narrative for myself. It became the structure for my way back home. And I left New York to finish Carver in Idaho after I'd started drawing it. I was around my parents, my stepdad and my mom, I should say, and got it done. And then it was sort of like, cool. Like, the feeling of being done with that is indescribable. And then, it, but it was like, I remember my stepdad, who's like basically John Wayne, you know, the guy who's just like, well, I'm not a very smart man, but then I'll drop some cowboy wisdom on you, and you're like, holy shit. <laughs> and one of the things he always told me, he, he's, he's a construction manager, and is amazing, just an amazing builder, and has an amazing mind. Like he, the construction management degree is like a four-year degree. He sat down and read every book in the construction management program in two weeks, then went and aced the test the first time he did it. The man's brilliant. But he had told me, he's like, when I, when he was like, when I, before I moved to New York, he's like, what are your goals? Um, and I'm like, I want to write and draw my own, my, my book. I want to write and draw Carver. He's like, and? I'm like, well, maybe I want to win like an Eisner. He's like, that's not what I'm asking. I'm like, well, what are you asking? He's like, he's like, you need a quantifiable goal of some kind because you can't just have this sort of abstract thing because if you get it, then what are you left with? And I'm like, I don't know, I'm just an artist, blah, blah, blah. And then I, like, I, I conquered that dragon I for him, it was like he wanted to build a high-rise, and he did. Then he was just sort of like, shit, what do I do now? And that's exactly how I felt when I got done with Carver. I'm like, fuck. Like, I, like this, this was what was, like, propelling me forward for, like, four years. This is, this is the only thing that got me out of bed when I wanted to just stay hidden and depressed. And so, like, I was suddenly left 
really felt emotionally and mentally naked because I'm like, I'm not Carver anymore. I don't have Carver, like, you know, as this, like, driving thing. And so I kind of went on a soul-searching thing. Like, I, yeah, I won uh, IGN.com Graphic Novel of the Year is what is what it won. And this is after it had been in the Washington Post, Entertainment Weekly, Hollywood Reporter, The Nerdist. Like, it had been on all these other places. And it's like every time this, this stuff would happen, it was just, like, so abstract to me. You know, because it's just like maybe it would lead to money or something, you know, or a bigger career. I didn't know. But it was just like being in the school newspaper to me. It was of no consequence. Did you want to go back to New York or like was there any opportunity left? And I was actually going to do an like I did an issue of the of that uh, of like a six issue series. But I was going to do a full um, uh, like 120 page graphic novel after um, but just a lot of things creative, like film, comics are all the same. It's like, you know, everybody's in the room, there's contracts coming, and then all of a sudden it's dead, you know, and it's not happening anymore. Um, and so I, I needed to make money, and they kept drawing it out, drawing it out, and I told Rosenberg, like, dude, I'm sorry, man, but I gotta, like, I gotta take this other gig. And the company, Black Mask, that was putting it out, they were trying to get me on a different project, and it's just like, I, I've, I've never really, like, I, as much as I wanted to make comics, I never was the person, like, I want to draw Batman. Or like I want to, I just want to like anybody's comic. I don't give a shit. It's like no, like I mainly just want to do my own shit. Um, and then like occasionally I'll find something where like the skillet thing. Actually, I'm I, I like drawing the skillet comic. They're really good people. John Cooper, who's the basically like the I guess you'd say like the main guy in the band, loves comics. I mean, loves comics. And so he, he'll just text me out of the blue and be like, "Oh my god, man!" And and not oh my god, he's very Christian, so it's it's very like PG. Uh, but like it just it makes me excited to have somebody else like see something in their head come come to fruition for the first time so you know i try to i, I it's kind of like what we're talking like it's, this is how i'm spiritual i guess you would say like i just want to invite goodness and in. i want to invite positivity as much as i can and i'm very conscious of that especially after 2011 after i started experiencing these deaths and then the, the trauma my friends were experiencing as well due to the deaths that also led to more deaths um, it's just like, I just feel like I'm here to do as much as I can for the people around me. And that might be strangers I meet in the street looking for directions. It might be the guy that was at the bar last night that needed to, needed help finding his phone at the Uber. It's just like, I'm selfish. It makes me feel better. It makes me feel good to help people. And so I don't like being around people who don't value that and don't acknowledge it. Yeah. I feel like the entertainment industry is definitely full of more takers than givers. And I think there's probably yeah. some uh, matchers in there, just always matching yeah. the play. Uh, but I do agree with you in the sense that, you know, when you finally, I think the idea that collaboration is the new profit, you know, that really does mean something. Because yeah, if you can make the creativity flow, then it's just got to be monetized at some point. And at some point if you've got more out on the table then whether it's the next commercial job or you know with carver illustrating all that skill the talent the storytelling and then have people go we need that over here and then you know you being able to carry yourself into a place regardless of what their operating culture is and carry yourself as you are and like allow that that goodness or that connection to happen to go okay you know, this, this is going to be good for both parties. They see the value, and because they see the value, they understand the money exchange. 
you know so it's Correct. like you know and finding but that i think is interesting on the flip side though i've had a lot of people that i've known that are say friends or peers maybe is a better way of putting it that just are flabbergasted by the things i'll say no to because i'm it's just like i wouldn't enjoy that like or i don't i don't that i don't respect this person the way that they see them treating other people when i'm meeting so so now i'm curious what have yeah. you said no to and then maybe from that we will go into what you've said yes to because i think those are a lot of exciting projects um the big one which is kind of i mean it was big at the time for me um when i was working at Filson in new york and i was sort of trying to figure out and crack the code on carver i had met an editor at dark horse comics which is a pretty big publisher uh, would have been the biggest publisher I'd worked with up to that point. I met her at ACA, actually, at that residency I was at. She was, at the time, dating this guy named Craig Thompson, who was one of the master artists there that was teaching one of the residencies alongside Paul. I was in Paul's group. And uh, we'd stayed in touch. And I, I used to be really, like, I, I was that person. I'm, I'm sure for you it's probably, like, producers or I don't know who you'd be kind of, like, sending your scripts to. But, like, at the time I'd be like, oh, hey, I, I just did this thing. Like, what do you think of that? And they're like, oh, cool, you're getting better, you're getting better. And so finally I got kind of the tap from her. She's like, hey, I got this book with this guy, Douglas Rushkoff, who is like one of the guys that like sort of predicted the online internet 2.0. And that's kind of like what he's been coasting on for the past like 15, 20 years. And um, he, they, he wanted to do an Aleister Crowley book, which I didn't know much about Aleister Crowley going into that. I knew... You know who he is? Yeah, magic, and he was into sexual magic, but then he, like, revived the tarot Thoth deck, and, yeah, he definitely into magic. Did, a lot, of, did yeah. a lot of sketchy shit, too. Oh, yeah, um, oh, yeah, yeah, like, magic crosses over, you know, because these traditions are actually, you know, there's some weird stories about Buddhists and weird stories about Taoists and, like, how they have, yeah. like, ways to basically you know, do sexual magic, like drain, drain the aroused sexual state, almost as if the human is like a battery and every genre of human is a different type of battery. And then they have ways to like drain, you know, like, like, you know, religiously or whatever they did, if it worked or didn't work, just the fact that they have the practice and they've like kept it around. It's just like, really, you didn't keep it around because you don't get high off of the human battery. Like you're keeping it around yeah. for something nefarious, and I don't know what it is, Dalai Lama. <laughs> right? Yeah, um, what you got going on? Well, uh, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. So like back to Crowley, like um, yes, yes, the yeah, like I've definitely yeah come across. Well, so uh, Rush Cops wanted to do this, you know, Alistair Crowley book, and I'm like. I'm just like, oh, it's Dark Horse. This is going to be big for me. You know, I mean, it's, I mean, this is uh, prior to this, like the most had been paid for a project was like maybe two grand. And we're talking like this is going to be a $30,000 project for me. It's like game changer. And I've had a few of these actually that have come and gone. I, For one, I meet Rushkoff. And on the off chance that he's listening to this, I'm just going to apologize now. I met him at some startup he had like an office at in, in Midtown. And like, I just walked in and just immediately I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't think I jive with this dude. Wouldn't stop talking about himself. Was obvious that he was like trying to like sort of, I don't know, overwhelm me with the whole the office and like he looked like he dressed younger than I did and he was like a fifty something year old man at this point and he just was talking the way he was talking it was just like there was no substance to it like it was just it was just this he just I don't know it was just. It, it's like the same reason why I knew the guy worked for the CIA. I'm like listening to him and going like, just getting the worst feeling 
Like my gut feeling is just like this is just making me want to throw up right now. And but I was like, but I didn't listen to my gut, and I went ahead and said, yeah, I'm gonna go ahead and do it. And so originally they were like, okay, well you two are creating this story together, so 50/50 ownership of all media rights and royalties. Cool, that's pretty standard. Then all of a sudden I get this like email from from the editor who's like, well Douglas thought about it, and you know he's 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 going to be complete owner of the the intellectual property, but he'll split the uh, the media rights with you. It's like fuck. Okay, cool. That's if there's something's going to happen, then that's what you really care about, anyways. And then I got the contract, and the contract was a boilerplate, like, uh, work to hire, meaning that, like, I had zero rights, period. Uh, I'm just getting paid to do the job. And I'm, and I'm like, I go back to the editor. I'm like, this isn't what we agreed to. She's like, oh, well, you and, you and Douglas are going to have to figure that out. And I'm like, um, well, tell him to figure it out. And she's like, well, he's, he's, he's good. He, he believes in creator's rights. I'm like, okay, then tell him to get me a contract then. Like, if you believe in creator's rights, then then you need to give me a piece of paper that guarantees me rights. And he wouldn't do it. And I was really circling the drain, and, and I was just like, this is just wrong. And then, I, and then I also I'm doing character designs and things at this point. I'm really digging into the script, and it's like there's like underage male-on-male uh, -male rape that's occurring. There's uh, like the sexual magic stuff just gets real, Apparent. at least in that story, got real heavy for me. And I'm just like, yeah. this is all adding up into a really weird odd thing that I just don't want to be a part of. Good and call, dude. I, Good I, call, because it's real. I burned bridges. I burned bridges on that, though, saying no. I won't apologize, because these guys aren't going to hire me ever, but just so you know, like, this sexual magic stuff is real, and most likely that guy, whatever his name was at Dark Horse, he is a practitioner of magic, and a lot of these magic people, they take various traditions, whether it's from the old Celtic world of geomancers, lithomancers, you know, uh, Stonehenge type, what yeah. I like to call white witch nature magic. Then there's pagan traditions. Then there's the Crowley tradition. And so when you meet a lot of these people, and especially if they're into publishing some of the stuff, they're taking part in the passing on of the lineage. And sometimes these lineages of magic, as much as it's like, yeah, we are studying a known lineage of magic. Okay, that's cool. Respect. Are you doing it responsibly? And then the other one is some lineages some lineages have had a great time to develop but also develop mistakes and like yeah. oddly enough i've you know there was a girl who worked in a coffee shop out here and she kind of was doing her thing in new york and as she got deeper and deeper you know she realized that there was a whole other magic thing happening and then she basically you know, in a way got burnt by it, you know, but I mean, but then she came back and kind of did some training and got all of her stuff together. And then she kind of, I think, went back even more powerful than she was when she came, you know? So like, it's one of those things where like, what you're describing to me, an older 50 year old man, I mean, you know, it's like, it's fine. I'd like, I'm the, like, there's no judgment on it, but yeah, a lot of the sexual magic. Right yeah. Yeah. And then also if you're already a psychic or an intuit or have intuition, then then your things are going off. And so yeah. as much as this individual might like to believe that he's a high practitioner of magic, well, guess what? Creative people are also practicing a form of natural magic. And if we get a bad intuition, 
You know what I mean? Some of the best psychics were just naturals, and then they basically. It doesn't have... mean I'm making a judgment on Rush Cobb. Oh no, no, I think Rush Cobb's a bad person. It's just that like no, 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 the no, whole no, thing no, no bad, judgment bad on Rush Cobb. Yeah, 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 bad mojo. But I'm just telling you, kind of what I've seen around the space. Have your perspective. Yeah, yeah, just around the space. So even the deeper and darker that I go, I realize that there is deeper practices, whether it's. You know, secret societies, whether it's um, rituals, simple ritual practices say, that yeah, happen. Knowing a little bit about Freemasonry and that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Like yeah, because I think it's real. Like this human yeah. potential to materialize stuff through electromagnetic potential of gatherings and like in increasing, you know, if there's a group of 100 people all doing the same thing and singing the same thing, there's a power in that intention. And then how yeah. that power goes off and gets translated into this other world outside of our three-dimensional space, well, that's something of magic. And so, you, you know, and the other one is, you know, not everyone has to believe in it, but I would also believe that there's even forms of, like, Christian magic and, you know, other, other things in there that, like, you know, people just don't like to talk about because it's a little bit too much. You know, you're like... Yeah, I mean, like, I would use different words for it, but I, I'm yeah. 100% on board with what you're talking about. And I think that, like... In the case of the Rushkoff book, versus what ended up happening was all of a sudden I said no, and there it was. I got I, I figured Carver out, and I and I started working on Carver. Nice, but, nice, but, nice. But the thing that I said yes to before that, uh, to answer the complete part of your question, was uh, Matthew Rosenberg again, the, the Wu Tang guy. Uh, he had talked to some dude at AMC, the TV channel, and uh, they were looking for somebody to do a comic uh, for about a uh, with regards to a show they had called Turn which was about Revolutionary War spies. Yeah. And they specifically wanted to do a comic that was going to be set in the French-Indian Wars with Robert Rogers and George Washington. And so when the AMC people got a hold of me, they're like, yeah, you know, I know it's probably kind of boring, but, like, you know, we want to, you know, do this thing about Robert Rogers. And I'm like, Rogers Rangers? And they're like, you know what this is? I'm like, uh, yeah. Like, I'm like, I'm like, yeah, like, yeah I know exactly who, like, Northwest Passage and all this stuff that, like, I grew up loving. And they're like, oh, so, like, you you actually, you're excited about this. I'm like, oh, my God, yeah, what do I have to do? Like, you know, what, what do I have to shoot, do to show you to get the job? And so and so I ended up, like, uh, that was the first time I ended up art directing and project managing a comic book because I had to have, like, an assembly line going for myself where I was penciling, inking a little bit, but I also had an inker, I had a colorist, I had a letterer, and then I was working with, the sh like, not the showrunner, but, like, sort of the second-in-command for turn and the AMC creative director at the same time I'm like I'm like scrambling I'm like I'm like getting trying to get all the carver shit out of my head that's suddenly there and so by the time I was done with the turn that was when I was like ready to like go to a publisher and be like here's carver like this is this is this is what we're going to do and so like I'm glad I have zero regrets about saying no to the rush cop Alistair Crowley thing but I I burned bridges with a major publisher which now they I mean the editor, she doesn't even work there anymore, so no one would even know who I am at Dark Horse, probably. Oh, yeah, job um, positions change, and that's the great thing about maintaining integrity. Three, for sure. Three to five years, everybody shifts, because guess what? <laughs> the entertainment Shitty industry... people go away. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Shitty yeah. people go away. <laughs> I mean, we're often replaced by new shitty people, but, like, uh, you know, it's just, it's just... There's no reason to play that game. Like, it's a long game, I believe, to, to operate with integrity... In any sort of like entertainment field, which I mean, which so this is the thing that really disrupted a lot of people and bothered them. So like, you know, I think when I'm, I'm sure you've experienced this, where like no one really understands what it is you're doing. They see like, oh, you know, Josh won an award or Josh is at a film festival with with this current feature. He's got a podcast. It's like, 
you look like something to a lot of people that you probably don't perceive in yourself necessarily. So with Carver coming out, winning that award, or the lead up to it, I was just like, I'm not, I need to go home. Like, I need to go back to the place that I'm from. I need to, like, be around my family for the first time in, like, 25 years. I need to get to know my dad. Nice. I need to, to be there for my grandpa, who, like, you know, survived colon cancer, then got West Nile and should have died, like, four times. Like, I needed to go heal. Like, I'd, like, I'd gone through all this stuff to basically be able to go home and, like, sort of try to be, try, try to be a complete person. Focus less about this obsessive, you know, get the book done, get the first book out, get the career going, and be like, you know what? Like, I'm going to get kind of doused about it as much as I can be and just be like, that's going to exist regardless. I'm going to go be around my family. And so I was doing, like, you know, freelance stuff for the same publisher that had put Carver out the year before. I was doing, like, I did half of a book called Murder Ballads. I did a quarter of a book that's about, that was about Paul Oakenfold, the DJ's life. And I was just doing little things here and there. I wasn't feeling fulfilled. And at San Diego Comic-Con in 2017, I went there. And it was crazy. Like I, like somebody got a hold of me from a, a, APA, the agency in Hollywood, and I like had a meeting, and I basically like got an agent, you know, out of Carver. It's like not that it led to anything, but um, at all. But it was just kind of like that's funny. Nice guy though, the kind of dude that like knows the names of the janitors in his office, even though he's an agent. Nice and uh, good person. Like yeah, I mean, I was like grew up doing construction on the East Coast, and like we got drunk together drinking bourbon at the at the at the Hyatt. We went into a meeting with an editor at Dark Horse. And this this is this is why I can say that they do forget about you. And in, in Comic Con you've got like the big booths and they've got like little back rooms. And they've got like the secret secret back room where it's you go and you close the door and these like little temporary constructed booths. And we my friend Chris and I go in and we were kind of trying to pitch something together even though I'm just like I just didn't I wanted to do solo stuff but like Chris is there, and there's this whole other crazy story that happened that year. But we go in there, and we sit down with the editor, and before we say anything, she's like, I got to let you guys know. I know that you're here to pitch, but we can't take any pitches from you right now. Um, and we're like, oh. And, like, we're looking at each other going, like, what? What did we do wrong? And she goes on to say, it's like, we're only looking for pitches from uh, women, people of color, or LGBTQ backgrounds. And we're like, oh. Okay. So then we just sort of awkwardly sat there drinking the free water for like 20 minutes, just sort of pretending to have a meeting. We both walked out, and this is before, like, so this is 2016, actually. Um, so this is before Me Too's actually occurring. There's There have been some some stuff going on, because comics is very much a boys' club, too, even though there's a huge influx of, of, of female readership happening, especially young. And oh, so yeah. my, reaction to, my reaction to it was like, well, shit, probably a long time coming. It is kind of unfair, but so is like everything that's leading up to the reason why that just occurred. So I'm kind of like, I'm disappointed, but I'm not angry at the universe because it's just like, well, you got to correct this somehow. And I guess we just, it's just the wrong place, right time. I'm sorry, wrong place, wrong time to be a white guy, ironically. But everywhere else in the world, it turns out like there's still a patriarchy. Not that I'm trying to say I, like I'm, I'm pro-patriarchy, just that like I just felt like I can't be mad right now. I can't be upset that, like, somebody's trying to right this wrong, even though I think it is a little bit obtuse. Like, why can't we just all be – why can't we all just get along kind of thing? But, that, I mean, obviously we can't. So my reaction to it was different than Chris's. Chris is just like, this is insane. Like, this is bullshit. Like, you know, that's all he wanted was to make comics. And he hears somebody – just one person saying, sorry, I'm the one person that's saying that you're not entitled to this right now. And uh, he and I got into, like, pretty heated debates about it. And, and I was just like, well – 
you know what? Like, I'm not going to be angry about this. Like, I'm just going to figure out how to survive. And I was, I got done with the Oakenfold thing, and I was in Columbus, and my mom was visiting, and like, uh, it would have been like uh, September of 2017 at this point, at that point now. And I saw that they were opening a Filson store in Columbus. We walked past it, and this big ass bold letter said Filson. And I was like, there it is. That's my happy place. I'm just going to go work at Filson again. And so many people in comics that I know were just like, what in the fuck are you doing? Like, you work this hard, you, you know, you've got like, you know, the quote unquote, the award in the press, everything that says like, you are, you are, you have made it. So if I'm going and stepping back and saying like, I'm not happy and this is bullshit, it's toxic and I don't want to be a part of it. I'm going to go work in retail, even though it's like a little bit more than just, just retail, I'm not like going to work at the gap or something. I think it bothered a lot of people because, you know, they start putting their own narrative to it. Um, I was, I was going like, I don't want to be miserable. I want to be happy. And I was happy. And uh, I'll tell you, like, what's funny about that is it led to a whole other thing. I'm going to be, like, basically running a black ops unit out of Filson doing narrative content over the next year. That's amazing. And and even the lesson is even more important, I think. Just when you find something you like and you do it and you're a creative person – a lot grows from there, especially if you choose a place of equal integrity and passion. And I mean, mm-hmm. Filson is just, it's an amazing brand. I have like a like Scottish hunter's jacket with the buttons in the back. Oh, like, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. No. Oh, it's, I mean, like, I'm basically trying to get as much Filson stuff as I can. I can't say a lot about what I'm doing right now. Oh, like, yeah. Signed, yeah. No, I haven't no, no, signed worries. the NDA yet, but like, trust me, there's an NDA involved. Oh, yeah. Um, I've, I've already done, I can't say I've done about like, in total, 50 pieces of art for them already. That's just going to be on product and marketing. It's going to start coming out in 2020. But this would be um, completely different. Like, I mean, you you and everybody listening can sort of surmise or infer what I do creatively. <laughs> you know? so yeah, like, yeah, yeah, you yeah, know, 100%. Like, uh, yeah. But, Which I, mean, I want to go back crazy. to as well. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Um, well, no, finish up what you were saying, and then I'll, I got a question. Well, I was going to say, like, uh, you know, going with your gut, going with what's, what's like, you know, fuck the, what the crowd says. Um, I ended up, like, as the assistant store manager, and then immediately the guy that was the store manager got fired. So I was running the store for, like, seven months. And as a result of this, because that guy got fired, a month later, he was supposed to have gone to Seattle in May of last year to go to this manager's meeting, that like, with the 16 stores. It was going to be like a week there. And they're like, well, you're going to have to go now. And I almost didn't go because there, were, there really weren't enough people to, in the store to, to man it. And like the two guys that, that were working under me who were the shift leads who were like 21 and 22, they're like, no, we got this. Like, we'll keep the store running. We'll, we'll be here every day. Like, you know, we want you to go. Which, again, you know, I'm getting emotional about that. It's just like, uh, it's very important to me to be a good leader. And I think a good leader is somebody who, you know, is the first it, it uh, should be taking the brunt of the, anything difficult, but I went, and as a result, I was in a pro- we were in a meeting, a product meeting, and I was sketching, like while we were looking at what's going to come out in 2019, and a woman like popped up behind me like in a, a cartoon, and just goes like in a French accent, uh, "Oh, you can draw," and I was like startled. I jumped. And I was like, "Oh, yeah, uh, yeah," um, and and I, and she's like, "What are you drawing?" I'm like, "Well, I'm drawing the women's jack shirt, but it looks like a double logger to me." She's like, "It's a double logger. We based it on that." She's like, hold on one second. She had a, and then she goes out and steps in front of everybody 
and starts talking to them, and I realize that she's like the lead designer at Filson. Um, <laughs> and and I'm like, uh, uh, and she comes back, and she's like, so tell me more about what you do. And I'm like, uh, well, uh, I'm actually a cartoonist, but Filson's my happy place. And, and, and so we're talking, and we had, like the, the group's leaving, and we're having this mixer later that night, and she's like, come find me at the mixer. And so she finds me a few hours later there, and we're talking for hours. And I keep going, like, you need to go talk to somebody else because there's, like, just a lot of important people in the room. She's like, no, 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 no. Tell me more about this. And so it turns out we both love Corte Maltese, which is this European comic, but it's got named Hugo Pratt that inspired Carver for me. So we're talking about comics. We're talking about France. And then Alex Carlton's name comes up, who's the, the chief creative officer of Filson. He actually runs Filson. And she's like, oh, you know, Alex likes a lot of these things too, blah, blah, blah. Like cool, and and that was like that was that. And I, I asked her at the end, and I said, "Is it okay if I keep in touch with you?" She's like, "Yeah, for sure." Two weeks later, I get an email from Alex Carlton saying, "Like, hey, Ode basically is doing an introduction. She said that we needed to know each other." Uh, okay, and then that led to some phone calls, and that led to me doing product stuff, and that led me to doing more stuff. And now, like, Alex and I are texting and DMing and you know, making plans, so to speak. And then, yeah, so, like, the thing that I'm going to be doing later, starting later this year, is basically just a result of me going back to Filson because it's my happy place, a guy getting fired, me drawing in a room in Seattle and a stranger seeing me, and then talking about a European comic. I'm so accustomed to that now. Like, I don't take it for granted, but it's like, you got to be, you have to have integrity. You have to move through life with consistency and integrity and that, that, I believe, is the reason why these sort of opportunities happen in my life is that, like, I have a control. It's a controlled experiment. Like, I don't deviate my behavior. I try to be as good to everybody as possible, treat everybody with respect and dignity, and don't deviate what I, from what I think is, you know, what, what it, it is a moral way of existing. So for everybody listening, because I think that's a really good high point to end on. I'm curious, is there a way to basically for all of your fans out there and then people who want to discover all of the work that you've done, is there a way to kind of give a summary of your body of work that people can go and look at to discover Chris Hunt and then we'll all keep our eyes on Filson? <laughs> I would say right now the best place to look is just my Instagram because I'm not really, uh, I mean, there's things, if you just Googled my name on Amazon, there's like, you know, comics that'll pop up. Uh, Carver's really the only thing that I've done that I feel incredibly proud of, just because of what has happened. Not not the awards or the press, like the people that I've met and the experiences that I've had, the stories that I've heard from people. The magic, I guess you could say, that I'm trying to promote is healing, you know, like, and also transparency, that it's okay to acknowledge that you can't be strong all the time. And, and so I was able to pretty clearly make that message in Carver and I'm looking forward to doing it to continue it in the, the next book which I'm still writing and then the thing that I'm doing that I can't talk about at Filson is very much about that too but but is able to the idea is to not just be like hey let's sell a coat it's like what makes Filson Filson and I have very strong and distinct feelings about that that transcend like just trying to sell somebody a coat from being in the stores and having my own experiences like I was saying about being a trail worker, like I, I have pictures of my Filson shirt hanging on a tree, drying from, you know, from the sweat with like the Filson logo sticking out. I never thought that like nine years later I would be working there. And so I would say all that stuff's going to funnel through Instagram for now. And that's, that's really where 
I just put content up, and that's just Instagram.com slash LazyFair, which is L-A-Z-Z-Y-F-A-I-R, play on the invisible hand of capitalism, LazyFair. <laughs> I like um, that. And then also but, you're uh, doing this longer content thing, which I think also is interesting because you're looking at, you know, hundreds of thousands of units possibly. And in a day and age where, you know, people aren't selling that many units, you know, I like to keep things simple. And then that way I know it's working. So um, yeah. can you tell me about this uh, project that you've got going with, with the band? Because I like that. Yeah, so Skillet, it's a Christian... You could call it a Christian rock band. They they sort of they're not embarrassed about being Christian at all. It's just that they 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 are Christian and yeah, they have a positive yeah. message within their music. But it's not like it's not they're not hitting you over the head with you know Jesus. Like again, it's not they they talk about being Christian openly. It's just that like they're just trying to make music for everyone that wants to, to sort of be inspired or feels alienated. They have a whole fan base called Panheads. <laughs> which I think is awesome. That's interesting. And uh, the story's not breaking the wheel or anything. I mean, it's like a post-apocalyptic, you know, ambiguously forward-in-time story that has, like, you know, I'm, like, drawing, like, the city. Like, you know, they've been living, like, in this sort of, like, quaint, pastoral, protected area for a while. Now they're, like, in this sort of Blade Runner-ish looking, like, you know, future version of Memphis, Tennessee. It's, it's them, like, John, as I said earlier, is a huge comic book fan. And he's, he's really great at monetizing in an earnest and honest way things that he likes that are tangently related to the band. So uh, all the band members are characters in the story, but they're not necessarily like, you know, playing themselves. It's not like a biographical comic. It's just John Cooper is John Cooper in the comic, but John Cooper has a vibrating axe that chops demon dogs. You know, <laughs> like, so I'm, I'm wrapping that up right now. I'm like kind of like, you know, I'm on a two-page-a-day sort of uh, timeline, although today is probably just going to be a one-pager, so I can also get done in time to start to fill some stuff, maybe take a break for like a few days, and that'll be coming out as a graphic novel in August, end of August, and that's, you can like, if you want to look for something online, I think that's the next thing that'll be coming out. It's just the book's called Eden, um, so it'll be out at the end of August, and they want to do more books now, I've learned, like two more books, but I don't... <laughs> I have that conversation because, like, I'd already told Philson I was going to be doing their thing for, like, a year. And then Skillet wanted to start the second book at the end of this year. So I, I don't really know how the whole thing's going to go. And I, we're just doing a test bed with Philson. It might just be six months, but the contract's going to be for a year if everything goes well. And then that's not to say that I'm going to get off the Philson train after a year. And Alex is very much a fan of Carver as well. Which is funny because somebody separate from Ode gave him a copy of Carver after after May because they're like, oh, this is a guy who works in Columbus who does comics. I think you'd like this. I, again, I have to be a little bit strategic here, but like the idea that what we're talking about doing, Alex wants it to be the next mouthpiece for Carver. Like the idea, the things that I sort of themes I brought up in Carver, some of those themes would be showing up in the thing that we're talking about doing from a different, slightly different lens for sure. Um, again, like what we're talking about doing is not just like drawn illustrations of like a, a tin cruiser. It's like the things that make Filson special. But it's I, going it for heartstrings. It's just going for yeah. heartstrings. And I think, you know, really every podcast seems to have a message. But in this one, you know, and it's popped up in a couple other podcasts, it's 
the integrity really leads you to an authenticity in the work that you're producing. And then when other people see that work, if if they are part of the same community of interests, then all of a sudden that authentic collaboration can happen. And, and even though the work might be for a company, those people, if the authentic connection is established, then there's some really nice storytelling that happens. And everybody in a company, especially like a company like Filson, it's just so authentic that you can't fake it. And I think in this Correct. world, we are in the age of authenticity and teaching creators how to not be lulled into this idea of celebrityism. You got to fake it till you make it. No, you got to chop wood, carry wood. You know, you just got to keep working. And so I really like that lesson. And I think this episode is definitely sponsored by Filson. <laughs> Authentic. <laughs> um, so yeah, no, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I think uh, it just I've got to sort of crack that nut in the next few days and kind of come up with a brief for marketing and say exactly what it's going to be, or at least specifically enough that like the rest of the company can get on board with it. I put Carver and Filson gear. I mean, that, that's another thing that I, I say to end on with. It's like you can't necessarily force something to happen. You know, you can chop wood, carry water. Do it, navigate life the best as best you can. And I, I always wanted to work for, for Filson, doing creative content. Since I discovered what Filson was, I'm like, oh my god, this is just so perfect. And so I drew Carver and Filson stuff, thinking that like, well, maybe, maybe someday the person that's running Filson, somehow as crazy as this sounds, will read my comic and like it and see that my character is wearing their stuff. But I, I mean, that was like a big hypothetical. You know, that was just like, that was just probably not going to happen in my world. But I did it anyways, because it seemed right, and it seemed authentic to me. And sure as shit. I know you probably have thoughts on the magic side of things. Like, I know I know chaos magic, that sort of thing. It's about, like, sort of putting a thought into the world and manifesting it in some way. And, like, I don't think I manifested it. It's just that, like, I think it's the lesson is that, like, you have to have patience as a creative. You can't expect the confluence of, of taste and events in the world to just line up every time to make a perfect hit or something. You've got to play the long game. That's a great way to end it. I will literally end it with you got to play the long game. <laughs> <laughs>Thank you for listening to American Filmmaker, and thank you to Chris Hunt for all the lessons from the creative front lines of storytelling. All of Chris's creative work can be found in the show notes. The music used in this episode comes from my new documentary feature film, American Hemp, and it was created by Michael J. Deller of the Budos Band. This is our fourth or possibly fifth film working together, so I just want to say thank you, Mike, for all that you do.